You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. Welcome, everybody, on the Encounter's behalf. I'm Jonathan Fields, and I will moderate this incredible event. <laughs> uh, just short bio, uh, bios. Uh, Daryl Davis, Mr. Davis, is an international recording artist, actor, and leader of the Daryl Davis Band. He is considered to be one of the greatest blues and boogie-woogie and blues and rock and roll pianists of all time, having played with a legendary blues band, formerly the Muddy Waters Band, and Chuck Berry. You've heard of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. He has done film and television work as well and had roles in the critically acclaimed five-year HBO television series, The Wire. As a race relations expert, Daryl has received acclaim from many leading media institutions for his book, Clandestine Relationships, and his documentary, Accidental Courtesy. Christian Picciolini, Right, like a peach, like the peach. Christian Picciolini. Like a peach. Yeah. <laughs> is an award-winning television producer, public speaker, author, peace advocate, and a former violent extremist. Christian's involve- involvement in ed- and exit from the early American white supremacist skinhead movement is chronicled in his memoir, White American Youth. He now leads the Free Radicals Project, a global extremism prevention and disengage, disengagement network, and has helped more than 300 individuals leave hate behind. This work is spotlighted in the MSNBC documentary se- series, Breaking Hate. His forthcoming book, Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism, will be released on February 25th. Without further ado, Mr. Davis, would you like to begin? Sure, thank you. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you. Well, I'm gonna talk to you all a little bit about communication, which is something that we lack today in our country. We spend way too much time talking about the other person, or talking at the other person, or talking past the other person. What I've learned to do which I have found to be very effective, is spend time talking with the other person. Now, you all saw the events that that, uh, that transpired in Charlottesville, Virginia, a couple years ago at the Unite the Right rally. Is that correct? A lot of different white supremacist groups came together, and it was nothing but mayhem there, including the murder of a young girl, Heather Heyer, when a white supremacist got inside his vehicle and drove full force, full speed, into a crowd of counter-protesters attempting to murder as many as he could. He succeeded in injuring 20 and murdering that one young lady, Heather Heyer. But I'm gonna point out a lot of things went on that day. And you know, when I, when I go to KKK rallies and neo-Nazi events, I'm not there to fight. I'm there to talk and have a conversation and try to understand what is going on through their minds and help them to understand that I am a human being. At the end of the day, we all want the same thing. We all want to be loved, we all want to be respected, and most importantly, we all want to be heard. And when I say respected, you know, we don't necessarily have to respect what somebody says, but let's respect their right to say it. So here we have about, I've been doing this now for about 34 years. That's about 27 years ago at a Klan rally in the state of Maryland. The rally's about to end, you see the cross going out, the flames going out. That's in Missouri, three years ago. And what I do there is talk, have conversations. Now, Charlottesville. This is one of the many incidents that happened in Charlottesville. The people that you see coming down the stairs are Ku Klux Klan members. You don't know that because you don't see them in their robes and hoods. I know that because I know each one of those guys individually. 
the gentleman on the, uh, on the bottom there with the flamethrower, he has an aerosol can, lit a match, and created a flamethrower. He's trying to set these guys on fire, and they're trying to hit him with their Confederate flagpoles. Now, the guy in the white t-shirt, the first one on the steps there, he is the Grand Dragon for Virginia. Grand Dragon means state leader. The Imperial Wizard, which means national leader, he's, he's out of that shot. He'd already come down in front of, of the people, so you don't see him. He's already down there. But I'm going to show you him in a moment. He's wearing a bandana on his head, a blue jean vest, and black jeans. He comes down the stairs before the, the, uh, the black man lights up the, uh, the flame. And he walks this way. He turns around to see his members, and he sees the flame. He pulls out a handgun and points it at the head of this black man and shouts, hey, nigger, and then lowers the gun and fires it. And the bullet goes into the dirt right there in the gravel, right there near the, uh, the black guy's foot. It was later dug out of the dirt. And then he turns around and he walks away, standing just feet away are the Charlottesville police wearing green neon vests, standing there like this, watching the whole thing go down. They did not do one thing but watch. They did not intervene or anything. That was one of the many incidents that led to the chief of police of Charlottesville being fired. Today, they have a new police chief, thank goodness. Now, I want you to pay attention to what, to what I just described as you see it unfold here. This uh, video is courtesy of the ACLU of Virginia. Okay, that's Charlottesville, Virginia. It might not be New York City or Syracuse or Buffalo or Newark, but don't think for one second that cannot happen right here. Anywhere there's hate that is unaddressed, that can happen. And Charlottesville is just as much a part of your city as New York City is. If you are an American, every city in this country is your city. You can only live in one at a time, but you belong to all the cities because this is your country. Now, you saw him there in his street clothes. Here he is in his imperial wizard robe. Now, what would you do if you saw that taking place in your city. You want to blame somebody? You want to blame the black guy for trying to set people on fire? Yeah, we can blame him. He should not have been doing that. You want to blame the uh, Klansmen coming down the steps trying to hit somebody with their Confederate flagpole poles? Sure, we can blame them. They shouldn't be doing that either. Let's blame the Imperial Wizard, this guy for pulling out a gun and firing it. Yep, he should not have done that. He can be blamed. Let's blame the police for not doing their job. They are paid to serve and protect, and they stood there and watched somebody fire a gun and say, hey, nigger. Yeah, we can blame the police. But you know, perhaps we should blame ourselves for allowing our society to come to this point in the 21st century. But i tell you what, sitting around blaming people is a waste of energy. 
Because every time you blame somebody, they want to blame you or blame somebody else. I'm going to tell you something. Our society can only become one of two things. It can become that which we sit back and let it become, or it can become that which we stand up and make it. So before you go to bed tonight, not right now, before you go to bed tonight, I want you all to ask yourself this question and answer it. What do I do when I see this? Do I sit back and see what my society becomes? Or do I stand up and make my society become what I want to see? That's, your, that's the question you must ask. Now, what did I do? I called that guy up. I said, hey man, you and I need to talk. Not Klansman to black man, but man to man, American to American. Your Confederate history is as much a part of my history as my black history is a part of yours. We both are Americans. It's all American history intertwined. Let's get together and explore it. I talked to him for about half an hour on the phone. He agreed. We set a date. I drove an hour and a half by myself to his house. I sat in his living room. House is full of KKK stuff and Confederate flags. I sat on this Confederate flag blanket on his couch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I listened to he, to him, and his uh, fiance, clans lady, give me a uh, history lesson for two hours on American history from a Confederate perspective, of course. But I, I sat there and I listened. And when he was done, I corrected him on a few things that he got wrong. Some things he got right, some things he got wrong. And I made sure I corrected him. Then when it was my turn to present my platform, I suggested that we set a date. And this is, this is in Maryland, you know, about uh, almost an hour and 45 minutes uh, north of Washington, D.C., north of Baltimore. I suggested that he come down to my house. I live in Silver Spring, Maryland, 15 minutes from Washington, D.C. Come down to my house. I will secure tickets to the new Smithsonian African-American Muse uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture. And, and let's tour that museum together. He said, okay. I sat there for two hours listening to him. Now he's going to reciprocate. So we set the date. I have a connection to the museum. I got the tickets. And they, he and his fiance, the clans lady, came down to my house. And we went to the museum, put them in my car. I drove them downtown to DC. And we went to the museum. This is how he entered the museum, the largest black history museum in the world. Check out the uh, head attire. Okay, and there's the Klan's lady. Now, what did we do while, while, I, while I took them around and tour? We looked at dis different uh, ex uh, exhibits and displays on slavery, on integration, segregation, we watched little video clips on blacks in medicine, blacks in sports, education, science, the arts, music, etc. Do you see do you see him holding her there? Huh? Y'all can speak up, yes or no? Yeah. Okay. Now, he is a big rock and roll fan. His favorite rock and roll artist of all time is the late great Elvis Presley. Now, I love Elvis Presley. I saw Elvis 14 times, I met him twice, and I went to his funeral. But Elvis Presley did not invent rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, my, that's right, my big boss man invented rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Late great Charles Edward Anderson Berry, better known to most of you as Chuck Berry. So uh, Chuck Berry, one of Chuck Berry's Cadillacs 
his cherry red Cadillac is in the museum. I saw it at Chuck's house, but it's in the museum. So I took them to see it. Now who's holding his fiance? <laughs> I work fast. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> There's Chuck Berry and myself playing Johnny Be Good. Now, we toured the museum for about two and a half hours. It is impossible to take in everything in two and a half hours. I mean, you can't even do it in two and a half weeks. That place is vast, and you really got to go there and spend a lot of time and go back and back again just to absorb. So, you know, we did two and a half hours. And then we left, <clears throat> and I gave his fiance, the Klan's lady, my, uh, my cell phone to take a picture of he and I in front of the museum for posterity, in front of the marquee. This is what he did. I didn't arrange this. Okay? Now. Hold on. This, he's come a long way since Charlottesville, from, hey, nigger, boom. That was, the, the Charlottesville thing was August 12th, 2017. This was the end of June, 2018. But you know what? I mean, he's come a long ways, but he still has a ways to go. But at least now, he's going in the right direction. But it goes deeper than that. A few weeks after that picture, He's getting married to the Klan's lady. I've been working with him now for about a year. I get invited to the wedding, <laughs> to a Klan wedding. <laughs> I'm the only black guy at a Klan wedding. <laughs> <laughs> but, hold on, <laughs> it goes deeper than that. You can't make this stuff up, folks. This is, this is for real. <laughs> the young lady is from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Her father was too ill to come up there and make, to make the trip to walk his daughter down the aisle and give her away. Rather than ask one of their trusted clan members to, escort, to be the surrogate father and escort the bride down the aisle and give her away to the groom, they asked me. So I said I would do it. In the very beginning, back when we first started working together, CNN interviewed him. And he said, you know, he was going to be buried in his robe. Well, a little over, just, just, just a little under a year later, I asked him if I, if I could invite CNN to the, um, to the wedding and film this. This is not an everyday occurrence, a black guy walking a Klan's lady down the aisle and giving her away. <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, yes. He just asked that they not film the Klan members and show their faces other than his and his wife's. He didn't care about that, but he wanted to keep the, 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 the members private. I said, okay. Talked to CNN, they agreed. Well, here I am walking her down the aisle, okay? And you look up in the window of his bedroom you see a Confederate flag there. Like I said, he's come a long ways, but he has, he has a little ways to go. All right, so here is, here is the, uh, the bridal march. As you stand in the presence of God. This time, it was Davis giving something away. The bride. Me and his friendship has been something really special. She wanted me to be a part of this wedding. That's beautiful. That's a seed planted. There he is, the imperial wizard, the groom, the clan's lady, the bride, and the surrogate father. <laughs> Folks, people can change. It has to do with exposure and conversation, civil discourse. Let's make it a plan 
to not sit back and see what our country becomes, but to stand up and make it become what you want to see. And it starts first with conversation, civil conversation. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Picciolini, would you like to uh, begin? Daryl Davis, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. You know, I just want to say first and foremost uh, what an honor it is to be here, but also what a privilege it is to be here considering my past. Um, you know, people with brown skin and black skin often don't get the same second chances that I've gotten, and I want to acknowledge that, and I hope to help raise their voices as well uh, through my story a little bit. My journey was a little bit different than Daryl's. Um, it began 24 years ago uh, in 1996 uh, when I walked away from the American uh, neo-Nazi skinhead movement that I'd helped build almost from the very beginning. Um, I was 23 years old here, uh, but I had already spent eight years from the time I was 14 years old as a member of America's first uh, neo-Nazi skinhead group. Uh, but prior to that, uh, I lived a relatively normal life. Um, I, my parents are Italian immigrants who came to the United States in the mid-1960s, and when they arrived, they were often the victims of prejudice themselves, so it wasn't really a part of my family foundation. Um, in fact, it was the opposite. My parents had friends from all over the world uh, of different races and religions, and, and I was surrounded by a lot of love. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily part of my upbringing. Um, but because my parents are uh, Italian immigrants, they had to work extremely hard to raise, their, raise the family. Um, and they were often gone seven days a week, uh, sometimes 14 hours a day. And as a young kid, I didn't understand why they weren't around. I often wondered what I had done uh, to push them away, but certainly wasn't mature enough to ask. Um, so I started to act out. I started to try and, and vie for their attention. And uh, one day when I was 14 years old, um, in 1987, I was standing in an alley and I was smoking a joint and a man drove his car uh, down that alley and he stopped just in front of me. And he exited the vehicle and he had a shaved head and he was wearing boots. Uh, and it was eight, 1987, so nobody really knew what a skinhead was in the United States. Uh, and I certainly did not. But he walked up to me and he pulled that joint from my mouth and he looked me in the eyes and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. 14 years old, I have to admit, I didn't know what a communist was. Uh, I don't think that I had met a Jewish person before then. And uh, if I'm being honest, I didn't really know what the word docile meant. <laughs> In fact, I had to look it up before I got here. <laughs> um, but it was essentially the first time in my life after having been bullied for 14 years, uh, for growing up in, on the south side of Chicago, uh, in a very small Italian-American uh, neighborhood and not really being accepted outside of that, uh, I had been picked on and bullied, um, most often for my last name, which is difficult to pronounce. Uh, Picciolini became just about anything weenie. Um, 
So I really became very isolated growing up. And um, at 14, this man came up to me and he essentially saw me. Uh, and I felt seen uh, for the first time in my life. The next thing he asked me was very important though, because um, he asked me what my last name was, and of course I was afraid to tell him because people had used that as a form of torture against me. Um, but when I told him what it was, instead of attacking me for it, he said, that's an Italian last name. You should be really, really proud of that. And having grown up in an Italian-American neighborhood with parents who you know, spoke Italian and hardly spoke English, I knew very well what it meant to be an Italian. Um, but then what he said next was that somebody wanted to take that sense of pride away from me. And in fact, that was the only pride that I really knew anything about. Um, and then he started to tell me that it was uh, blacks and Jews and gay people and anybody who wasn't white and European uh, who were trying to take that away from me. And I started to kind of hang around this group of, of people who had gathered these skinheads and I started to adopt uh, what it was that they said. Uh, I started to mimic what they looked like and I very quickly shaved my head and put on my first pair of boots and suddenly felt empowered for the first time in my life. Before that, uh, my life felt like nothingness. And after I was recruited, suddenly I felt like somebody could see me, like I had a sense of agency. So I very quickly went from that 14-year-old to uh, a soldier, essentially, um, in an extremist movement. Um, but what led me there? Because if I didn't have that foundation of racism, if I didn't have that foundation of hate, what was it that led me in that direction? I think like anybody else, uh, especially at that young age, I was searching very desperately for a sense of identity, a community, and a purpose. And those are things that we all search for, things that are important so much so that they kind of define our values going forward. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know if I was Italian. I didn't know if I was American. I didn't know if I was Italian-American. I didn't know what my family was because I felt as though they had abandoned me. Uh, they didn't. That's just how I felt as a young person. And as far as purpose, well, that was something that was defined for me very, very clearly. It was me against the world. And I found this narrative as I was on the fringe. Now, if this is something that we all look for, if we're all searching for a sense of identity, community, and purpose, why aren't we all extremists, right? Um, and the way I like to describe this is that I was on a journey, um, just like everybody else. And you could even see that the identity was so clear. We all dressed the same, we said the same words. Um, we hung out in these tight groups and my family became something that all of a sudden elevated me to a position of notoriety. Um, I felt at first as though I was respected, as though I had some sense of agency. And my purpose, well, again, that was very clearly defined for me. This was me in 1992 in front of the Dachau concentration camp uh, in Germany. So what led me there? I come from Chicago, and if anybody's ever been to Chicago, uh, we have a lot of potholes. Uh, you have them here too, I think, in New York. Uh, but these are metaphorical potholes. These are the things that happen to us in our life's journey. Things like trauma. For me, it was abandonment. It can be abuse, it can be joblessness, it can be a lack of education, it can be privilege, even, if it isolates us so far from the reality of, of humanity. It can be mental illness, it can be millions of different things, it can be the loss of a parent or a relationship that somehow sends us to the fringes, detours us, so to speak, on our search for identity, community, and purpose. And my potholes had not been repaired and I did not know how to navigate them, so eventually they detoured me to the edges of society where the narratives of hate were plenty. Now, 
there are all sorts of narratives on the fringes, all extremist narratives. And I define extremist behavior as anything from being a neo-Nazi to being a drug abuser or committing suicide or walking into a school and murdering your classmates or flying to Syria to join ISIS or being sex trafficked. Those are all manifestations of extremism, all narratives that live on the fringes if we are suddenly lost because of the search for identity, community, and purpose. And the recruiter, the man who found me, knew exactly what to look for. I was vulnerable. I was idealistic. Had a group of ballerinas been across the street and approached me at the same time those skinheads did, I could have been the greatest dancer on earth. <laughs> <laughs> then you would maybe see me on stage with Daryl <laughs> in a musical capacity, but unfortunately that never happened. Had a baseball coach or a soccer coach or some artists come up to me at the same time, I gladly would have chosen them. It just never happened. At 14, I felt as though, like you know, teenagers do, that I knew everything, but that the world was, uh, that my time in the world was short, so I had to make decisions. And even though when he approached me with these ideas in that alley about racism and Nazism, I had no idea what he was talking about, but I still bought in. And that was because the reward of that sense of identity, finally knowing who I was, at least you know, who I thought I was at the time, or where I belonged, you know, the family that accepted me, was more of a reward than any of the other things that I had to do to stay a part of it. So then things kind of started to change. I spent eight years as a part of this movement, but during that time, um, about six years in, I met a girl and I fell in love. And at 18 years old, we were married and we had uh, a son at 18 and, and another son at at 20, and suddenly that sense of identity, community, and purpose was challenged for me because I had to ask myself, was I a hate monger or was I a father and a husband? They couldn't coexist. Did the community I wanted to serve, was it the one that I had surrounded myself with to boost my ego or was it the one I had physically given life to? So I had to really question what my purpose was in life. I wish I could tell you I made the right decision at that time, uh, even though my wife and I stayed married for four years, and even though I didn't bring uh, my ideology home, I was a very different person at home, even though my wife knew exactly what I was doing, and I, at that point, I was a leader in this movement. I had started a band, uh, one of the first bands in the United States to play racist music, and then started to import that and perform overseas. Uh, even though she knew that, she loved me and gave me a chance, but I didn't make the right decision because at the end of that four years, because I had not left, uh, my wife uh, couldn't tolerate it anymore. I didn't prioritize the family uh, over my beliefs. The reality was I was afraid. I was afraid to start over because I didn't want to go back to that nothingness that I had at 14. I was afraid that I, could, I would lose the only meaning that I thought I could ever find. And because I totally missed prioritizing my family, I ended up losing them instead. So my wife eventually left and she took the children. Uh, and that caused me to go down uh, a bit of a spiral. But before that, I actually opened a record store uh, to sell racist music that I was both importing and making at the time. and. Uh, what happened next, I was not expecting. Of course, I couldn't go to City Hall and ask for you know, a business license to sell racist music, so I told them I was selling all sorts of music. Uh, and in fact, I did stock my store with racist music, but also hip-hop and punk rock music and heavy metal. I didn't expect people to come in to buy that other music because 75% of my revenue came from the racist music, but people did come in to buy the hip-hop and the punk rock and the heavy metal. And those people were people of color, they were Jewish people, they were gay people, and suddenly, even though they knew exactly who I was, exactly what I was about, 
they chose to not attack me. And of course, when they came into my store to shop, I wasn't you know, all that interested in having conversations at first. Uh, I was happy to take their money, uh, but I wasn't interested in establishing any sort of you know, a rapport with them. But they kept coming back. And eventually, they started to talk to me. And eventually, I started to respond back. And after a while, um, I started to develop, you know, kind of casual relationships with my customers, who, uh, people who were, I had kept outside of my social circle for so long. Uh, and it was one day, uh, I remember, and this happened many, many times with different people, but one instant, instance I remember was a black teenager who would always come into my store and goof around. He was, you know, happy and, you know, never really bought anything, but he would come to see what all the new titles were. And one day he came in and he wasn't so happy. Um, and I chose to ask him what was wrong. Uh, and he had told me that his mother uh, that morning had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And suddenly I was able to relate to him on a deeper level because my mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer just six months before. And I found myself forgetting all about who this person was and having this very deep conversation, uh, a very touching conversation between us until I started to realize who it was I was actually having a conversation with. And that happened time and time and time again. And in fact, it was the people who I'd kept outside of my social circle that came in and showed me compassion uh, when I least deserved it. And they were the people, frankly, that I least deserved it from. And I'm so grateful for them because they were the ones who allowed me to see that the demonization that was happening in my head towards them, um, that I could actually replace that with humanization. And I started to see them as people I, I respected much, much more than the ones that I had surrounded myself with for eight years. Eventually, I, I closed that store once I became so embarrassed to, uh, to sell the racist music that I pulled it, and because it was so much of my revenue, I couldn't sustain the store anymore. Um, so I went through a period where I was able to disengage myself from the movement that I was leaving. Of course, I wasn't genuine with you know, my comrades at the time. I told them you know, I needed to find a new job. I wanted to repair my relationship with my ex-wife and my children, uh, and that I needed to take care of myself. And I said, I'll be back. This was January of 1996. Um, I had no intention of going back. I just wasn't brave enough to tell them off at the time. Uh, until 1999, four years after I left, um, a friend of mine, a new friend, came to me and uh, this was, I was really trying to outrun my past, so I made new friends, I moved. And uh, she came to me and she said, listen, I, you know, I'm, I've been watching you and, and uh, I don't wanna see you die because I had been waking up every morning wishing that I hadn't woken up. And she said, you've got to change something, something, you know, we need to do something. And I said, well, I'm all ears, so if you have any suggestions, you know, I'll take them. And she said, well, you know, I just started working at a company called IBM. Uh, you should go apply there. Yeah, I laughed, too, when she said that. <laughs> I had been kicked out of six high schools. I didn't go to college. I didn't have a computer. I was an ex-Nazi. I was covered in tattoos. It was kind of a ridiculous request. Um, but I went in for an interview and they asked me back for another one and I ended up getting the job. It was an entry level position uh, installing computers uh, at universities and businesses when they would you know, order 100 or 200 computers, we'd go in and set them up. And, and uh, I was so excited until they told me where I would be going my first day of work. It was my old high school, the same one I'd been kicked out of twice to install their computers. Yeah. I didn't laugh, I was terrified. <laughs> um, but I decided I needed to go, I needed, this was a new start for me. You know, I'd been treating other people with respect, but I was not treating myself with respect. So I went and of course, you know, I knew somebody was gonna recognize me and who, who recognized me within the first few minutes uh, was uh, Mr. John Holmes, uh, the security guard I'd gotten in a fist fight with that got me arrested and kicked out for the second time, of course, you know first person to see me. Um, and when I saw him, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. And I said, uh, I'm sorry. And he looked at me and he said, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. 
I hope that makes you feel better because it doesn't do a damn thing for me. Um, but he listened to me. And at the end of that conversation, um, he forgave me for what I had done to him. And he encouraged me to forgive myself, but only after I went out and repaired the damage that I had caused. Uh, and I've been doing that for 23 years. I've used that process that he used with me and, and the people in the record store did. Uh, I've helped over 300, I think you said 300, but it's closer to 400. I think over 400 people disengage from extremism. Uh, I've worked with neo-Nazis, Klansmen, uh, former ISIS members. Uh, and uh, that's what I do now with my organization, the Free Radicals Project. So I will just end with one challenge, uh, and I hope you will do this today and every day. Um, but I urge you to find somebody who you think is undeserving of your compassion and give it to them because I guarantee you they may not deserve it, they may not ask for it, but they're the ones who can possibly benefit the most from it. So thank you very much. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded, and as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Thank you both for uh, telling us this incredible, these incredible journeys. Um, I had a couple of questions for each of you, if, if you don't mind. I, I had seen your, uh, your talks before, I mean, before I even knew about this. It's been pretty, going around for a while, Thank doing you. this, as you said. So, uh, one, one thing I want, want to ask you, what backstage you were saying, you know, when you talk about disengaging, you know, and, you know, compassion is the first step. But you said there, it, to really disengage, you have to do, you have to do some work. Can, can you explain what, you know, that, that without that, it doesn't really, this doesn't work. What, is, what did you mean by that when, when, when you... You know, on? the work, it, we were having a conversation about people who had just, in, just disengaged from extremism, wanting to rush in and do the work of helping others disengage. And while I do believe that former extremists can be powerful voices in helping that happen, uh, it, there needs to be a lot of self-reflection that happens first. Um, I've spent 24 years trying to repair the damage that I've caused, um, and I don't think that I'll ever stop doing that. Um, but there are some people who think, you know, I'm, I'm done with this, now I want to, to, you know, be absolved from it, and unfortunately that, it doesn't work that way. Daryl said something very, very important about communication, and I think, you know, so much of, of communication has to do with listening instead of speaking, and I think we forget that. Um, and, you know, I'm not suggesting we listen to the bad things that they say or the bad words or the toxic, uh, you know, the ideas that they're spewing. For me, it's about listening for those potholes because I understand that uh, haters, people who hate, really it's based in self-hatred being projected onto other people. Mm -hmm. Hate is like a suit of armor that um, you know, allows you to project what you're feeling onto others um, so that you don't have to deal with it yourself. And it's hard for them to recognize that what they're feeling about other people is actually what they feel about themselves. Uncertainty drives so much of this. Um, but the work really is about repairing the damage you've caused. Uh, it's not about necessarily being a public speaker and telling your story, but about committing yourself to going out into the world and showing compassion for those who maybe don't deserve it or being empathetic when maybe you don't feel like it. And it's about working in communities that are vulnerable, um, that have been marginalized. Uh, so it, it really can mean a million different things for, for different people, but it is about essentially the penance that you have to do, the responsibility that we have after having been involved in something to let the world know um, you know, to, to shed some light on the truth of what's happening. You remind me, it, it, it's, um, I mean, it's almost, I mean, most of us don't go to extremism, you know, and 
And so we don't listen so much. And we don't, we kind of just go about our life not realizing how rich life is and relationships are. It's almost like your experience of extremism it, it almost became a gift in a certain way for you to be able to, I, I mean, it's kind of like St. Paul, you know, St. Paul was just so vicious and then he, it, he changed, he appreciated the change in himself so much that, and that work means so much to you, you know, as a, as so I don't, I'm not saying it was it's a good that you did. I mean, it really is a responsibility. Once you recognize that you've led a toxic lifestyle to just kind of wash your hands of it and walk away and not commit yourself to helping the people that, come, that might come after you, I think is kind of skirting your responsibility, right? And it, it can mean something different for everybody. You know, not everybody's a public speaker or makes TV shows or writes books, but they can change their own communities. They can change, help people that are closest to them change. I think, you know, knowing what I know, having been through what I know, I have a responsibility to make sure that no other 14-year-olds go down that same path. So I, I guess I try and be that person I wish came to me in that alley when I was 14. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org slash donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Uh, Daryl, you had said um, that this, you, know, you, have to, you have to begin with discussion and, and compassion. Um, that, that somehow is the, the icebreaker to, even though you were you've been called into this identity, this extremist identity or the people you're meeting, there's something as simple, simple as engaging in this, that we're all afraid to. I mean, you hear in the, you know, you look at everything that's happening in the world and the news, you, you don't hear this, that there's a power that can change things and it's as simple as being looked at, that can break through an identity that, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess it doesn't happen to every. it happened to you, it didn't happen to everybody. Yeah, but hey. something happens when you're, when you engage person. So I, I wanted to ask you, you had said, you had said, sorry, one, and jump in with each other too, I'm not, I just, sure. so, so yeah. I was just gonna yeah. say that hatred is born of ignorance, mm -hmm. fear is its father, and isolation is its mother. It is the perfect marriage to create that sense of fear that then is projected onto others. And, and you had said, uh, in, when I heard you previously, you, you had said that um, what projected, what made you do this at the beginning of, of when you started this, you really were, you, when clans people said they hated you because you were black, you said, just like to yourself, how can you hate me if you don't know me? Can you expand well, that, a little bit on, on that? That yeah. started, um, if you, if you my, my, my parents yeah. were in the U.S. Foreign Service, so I grew up as an American embassy brat starting in 1961 at the age of three, traveling overseas. <coughs> you live in a country for two years, then you come back home here to the States, you're here for a few months, then you get transferred to another country for two years. Back and forth, back and forth. Today, I play all over the world as a musician. When you combine my travels as a kid with my travels as an adult, I have now been in a total of 57 different countries on six continents. So I've literally seen a multitude of ethnicities, cultures, religions, colors, you name it. <clears throat> and all of that has helped shape who I've become and my perspectives. Um, one of my favorite quotes of all time is by Mark Twain, and it's called the travel quote. And Mark Twain said, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. Mm -hmm and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. So, <clears throat> so true. One time when I came back from overseas, uh, we moved to Belmont, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston, and I was one of two black kids in the entire school. 
myself in fourth grade, 1968. And there's a little black girl in second grade, so I really didn't see much of her, except like at recess or at lunchtime. So consequently, all of my friends were white, and uh, fourth and fifth graders. A lot of, the, uh, guy, of my guy friends were members of the Cub Scouts, and they invited me to join, 1968. I joined the Cub Scouts. We had a parade marching from Lexington, Massachusetts, to Concord, Massachusetts, the, ride, the uh, route that Paul Revere rode. And there was the Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Brownies, 4-H Club, a bunch of other organizations. I was the only black participant. And my den mother let me carry the American flag. Streets were blocked off, sidewalks lined with nothing but white people cheering and waving and yelling the British are coming and all that kind of thing. So <clears throat> everybody's happy. But somewhere down this parade route, suddenly I got hit with uh, bottles and rocks and soda pop cans and just debris from the street by just a small group of spectators off to my right. And I, as, I, as I, I, I can still see the picture in my mind, I remember it being a couple of kids, maybe my age, a year older, and a couple of adults, might have been their parents, who were throwing things because I had no precedent for it. My first inclination was, oh, these people over here don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. It wasn't until my den mother, cup master, and troop leader all came running and huddled over me with their bodies. These were white people and escorted me out of the danger. <clears throat> I kept saying, well, why? Why are they hitting me? Why are they hitting me? I didn't do anything. And all they would say is, shh, move along, Daryl, move along. It'll be okay. They never answered my question. When I got home, my mother and father, who were not at the uh, parade, were putting band-aids on me and cleaning me up and asking me, how did you fall down and get all scraped up? I told them I didn't fall down. I told them exactly what had happened. And for the first time in my life, at the age of 10, 1968, my parents, I see, uh, you know, if I had a problem or, I, you know, or a question, I went to my mom and dad. They never lied to me, never. You know, either they answered the question or solved the problem, or they gave me the tools by which I could, I could derive the solution or answer. I didn't have big brothers and sisters to go to. My parents got it right the first time. <laughs> so I relied on my folks. When they told me why this was happening to me, I literally did not believe them for the first time in my life. My 10-year-old brain could not wrap itself around the idea that someone who had never seen me, someone who had never spoken to me, someone who knew absolutely nothing about me would want to hurt me for no other reason than this, the color of my skin. It made no sense. So I thought my parents were lying to me. And then a month and a half later, that same year, 1968, on April the 4th, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And nearby Boston, right here, uh, New York City, Christian's hometown, my hometown, Chicago, Illinois, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, Detroit, all burned to the ground with destruction and violence, all in the name of this, of this new word that I learned called racism. And then I understood that this, this racism thing does exist, but I didn't know why. So at that age, I formed a question, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 51 years, I've been looking for the answer to that question. I bought books on black supremacy, white supremacy, the Ku Klux Klan, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, looking for the answer. I asked people, they didn't know, well, you know, some people are just like that. That was the only answer I could get. It wasn't good enough. So one day, I, I graduated with my degree in music from Howard University, and um, <coughs> I was <clears throat> I was playing uh, in a country band. Country music had made a resurgence. There had been a movie out called Urban Cowboy with John Travolta and this mechanical bull, right? Remember that? And all the clubs that were doing top 40, 
that switched over to country. So I joined a country band. I'm the only black guy in the band, <laughs> only black guy normally where we would play, but I like country music. It's the same as the blues, same three chords. So <laughs> it is. So, <laughs> so anyway, but you know, oh, here, here's a funny thing. Christian and I were sitting in the back uh, in the dressing room before we came out here. And, um, you know, he, he, he's a musician as well. And I asked him, I said, what, what, do you play blues? He goes, well, no, I wasn't playing blues back then because he was in a white power uh, <laughs> skinhead band. And I said, oh, what were you playing? He says, rock and roll. I said, well, don't you know rock and roll is black too? <laughs> so, anyway. I knew the same three chords. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to unite us, those three chords. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so um, I was in this band, and I come off the bandstand after a break, and um, I'm following the band back to the band table, and this white gentleman comes up behind me and puts his arm around my shoulder and says, you know, I really enjoy your all's music. I said, thank you. I shook his hand, and he points at the stage and says, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't never seen you before. Where'd you come from? And I explained, yes, I just joined the band, but yes, they've been here before. He goes, man, I sure like your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Now, <laughs> I, was, I was not offended, but I was kind of surprised that this guy did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee's style. And I went on to tell him, he learned it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where rockabilly and rock and roll came from. Oh, no, 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 Jerry Lee invented that. I had never seen no black man play like that, except for you. Well, he was fascinated with me. I said, look, man, Jerry Lee's a friend of mine. He told me himself where he learned how to play. He didn't believe that either. But he wanted to buy me a drink. I go back to his table, he, I, I get a cranberry juice, he clinks my glass and cheers me and tells me this is the first time he ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. Hmm. Now I'm curious what's going on here. I ask him. Turns out he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And we had a good conversation, but it was music that brought us together. Not that night, but a long time after, it dawned on me, Daryl, the answer to your question that's been plaguing you since age 10, how can you hate me when you don't even know me, fell right into your lap. Who better to ask that question of than someone who would go so far as to join an organization that has over a hundred year history of practicing hating people who do not look like them and who do not believe as they believe. So I got back in contact with that Klansman and got him to fix me up with other Klan people that I could interview. And that's how I wrote my first book on the Klan, through those conversations. Rather than turn that hate back at him because, because he was hating something like that, no. Take that and turn it around. You know, everything can be used to a positive or negative degree. You take fire, right? It's a double-edged sword. I can take fire, I can bring fire to your house and heat your house, or I can bring fire to your house and burn it down. So we try to take things and use them in a positive light. And this is what led to me meeting a lot of Klan people and neo-Nazis. And through those conversations, some of them, many of them, ended up leaving that ideology and giving me their robes and hoods. I have a whole collection of robes and hoods and yeah, and, and thank you. So, just very briefly, you take somebody where Christian was in his former life, at this end. Take me at this end. If he's willing to sit down and have a conversation, even though we're at opposite ends of the spectrum, there is an opportunity to plant a seed and you have to nourish that seed, okay? And that's some of the work that Christians talk about doing. You just can't just jump out there and do it. You gotta nourish it, you gotta learn it. So you nourish those seeds, you're, you find commonality, and then you go from here to here. Now you've created a relationship. From here to here is a relationship. 
you begin nurturing that relationship and you're you're, you're crossing that divide the answer in the middle is music i think that's right (laughs) and music is what brings together too (laughs) so and by the time you get here you found a lot of commonalities and guess what when you get here trivial things that you have in contrast such as the color of your skin or whether you go to a temple, a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, don't even matter anymore at all. So you get together with people and have these conversations. Do the work, but, but understand what you're doing first. And I think Christian can elaborate yeah. on the steps you have to take with that. Finish, I, finish up here with a Yeah, just comment. really yeah. quickly, and I have that same philosophy. You know, if we can meet in the middle on the things that are fundamentally important to us, things like our families and, and, you know, what brings us meaning. Um, even if we're on the opposite ends of the spectrum, we can find connection in those things and we can start the conversations there. Eventually we may get off track ideologically, politically, whatever, but we have a reference point to come back to. If we start out on the opposite ends of the spectrum and never find a way to get to the middle, we will never get there. So I'll just right. Right there. Well, I'd like to thank you both for giving real flesh to the title of this talk, A Paper Thin Distance. There really is. So thank you both for your list. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.